Our current sermon series is called Christian Counterculture. It emphasizes our Lord's insistence that his followers be different, uh, a theme that he found in his Bible, the Old Testament. For example, in Genesis we read, and I will bless you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. A long time later, after Abraham's family had grown into a nation, a nation enslaved and then miraculously delivered from Egypt, God said, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A holy nation. How hard God worked to impress on Israel their calling to be holy. Consecrate yourselves, he said in Leviticus, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. You shall be holy to me, for I am holy. I have separated you from the peoples. I will make you a light, he said through Isaiah, a light for the Gentiles. Jesus echoes this biblical theme in the Sermon on the Mount. He calls his people to be different, distinct from the prevailing culture. We heard that last week in the Beatitudes, blessings pronounced on his countercultural disciples. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. From those words, we're reminded that God's kingdom and its blessing belong to those the prevailing culture regards as losers. Well, we hear Christ's call to be different again in today's text. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. As you're seated and file those hymnals away, would you take your Bibles and open to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 
And we'll do so in confidence that what we just sang is true, that God is still speaking by His Spirit, speaking to our hearts this timeless message from our Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, last week the Beatitudes, this week verses 13 through 16. If you were alive in the 1950s, you may recognize the name Mickey Cohen. Mickey Cohen was the most notorious criminal of that era, the most flamboyant gangster. And you may have heard that he became a Christian. Well, kind of a sort of a Christian. <laughs> Mickey Cohen attended a big evangelistic meeting and expressed interest in Christianity, and that got the hopes of some prominent Christian leaders high. What if this notorious criminal were to become a believer? Wouldn't that be a tremendous story, a testimony to God's grace? So a few of them visited him to see if they could get him to accept Christ. One came and shared Revelation 3.20, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And at the end of that conversation, Mickey Cohen invited Jesus into his heart. But he didn't seem any different. Those who had their hopes high were looking for a change of life, but Mickey Cohen didn't change. <laughs> and somebody finally visited him and said, you know, when you become a Christian, you become a new person. You may not have thought of this at the time, but when you invited Christ into your life, you had to give up your old way of life and your career. And he had an interesting response. He said, there are Christian cowboys and Christian football players, and Christian politicians, why not Christian gangsters? Christian gangsters. Absurd. But no more absurd, maybe, than Christian tax dodgers, and Christian drunkards, and Christian gluttons. Christian gangsters. A disturbing concept, but maybe no more disturbing than what a number of recent polls have shown that the ethics gap between Christians and pagans is shrinking. This week I saw online an interview with Jordan Peterson, the Canadian public intellectual, who was surprisingly deeply moved by the fact that he doesn't believe in God, but kind of wishes that he did. One reason that he has not taken the step of faith, he said, is because people who profess to believe in God don't seem to act like it. They don't seem all that much different than the people around them. Now, I don't think that's entirely fair. I don't think it's entirely accurate. But the fact that this thoughtful observer could even perceive things that way must grieve the head of the church. 
Because the head of the church, the one who delivered the Sermon on the Mount, expects his people to be different. When I was a kid, there was a show on TV called The Patty Duke Show, played by one actress who played two parts. She was both the girl, Patty, and her sophisticated, identical cousin. And the jingle at the beginning of the show said, went something like, um, they look alike, they walk alike, at times they even talk alike. You can lose your mind when cousins are two of a kind. Anybody remember that jingle? You're old. You're old. You're old. Jesus says that you ought to be able to tell the difference between people who claim to follow him, people who claim to be disciples of his, and others. Even if they sometimes look alike, live right next door to each other. The Sermon on the Mount, this kingdom manifesto that we're calling an exercise in Christian counterculture, expects Christians to be different. We saw that in last week's text. The Beatitudes are pronouncements of blessing on those that the world regards as losers. We'll see the countercultural message when we get to chapter 6. And Jesus says repeatedly, don't be like them. And we see it in today's text where Jesus says that his people are to be salt and light. Now, those are the two key words of the text, salt and light, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time. But before we look more closely at those two words, consider two other words that Jesus uses here, earth and world. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. How many disciples did Jesus have? The Sermon on the Mount is set pretty early in his ministry, so most likely the circle of disciples that he was primarily addressing here were the 12 whose names we have and a handful of women. And not exactly your Ivy League cream of the crop, movers and shakers with a lot of clout in the world. Whatever it means to be salt and light, we don't have to first become a moral majority to be it. Whatever it means to be salt and light, we don't have to wait until we have electoral clout to be it. To this little group, let's face it, a PTA meeting draws a bigger crowd. To this little group, Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth, the light of the world. So, the main words, salt, salt. Billy Graham tells a story about a Christian leader in a communist country. The man was a prominent pastor. He was also a medical doctor. And he got called in by the authorities one day and he knew that that meant that there was another crackdown coming on Christians in his country. Um, so he said to the men, 
uh, look, I know you want to interrogate me, but can I say something first? And they said, okay. He said, as you know, I'm a, I'm a doctor, and as a doctor, I know the importance of salt in the human body. The body has to be about 2% salt. If it's much less than that, the person will be sick. If the salt's not there, the person will die. Now, Jesus said that Christians are the salt of the earth. What was it you wanted to talk to me about? And they said, never mind. They let him go. <laughs> now, Jesus' first followers did not know about the chemical makeup of salt. They did not know about the percentage of the body that needed to be comprised of salt. But they did know that salt is a preservative. Back then, before refrigeration, the only way to preserve meat was to pack it in a lot of salt or soak it thoroughly in a heavy salt solution. It would preserve the meat from rot. And what Jesus is saying is that moral rot is retarded by people like you, my followers. The world's tendency to go bad somewhat slowed down and minimized by Jesus' followers. So Britain's slave trade came to an end because a few backbench members of parliament stuck with it until they aroused the conscience of the nation. A little girl nicely pesters her neighbor lady until the lady comes to comes to church. An off-color joke in the office is whispered or not told at all because people realize that the guy in the next cubicle is a, is a Christian. A village or even one street in town is a kinder, gentler place because some Christians live there. Salt. Preserving. A woman in our church made a salty difference in a local store. The store had on display at the checkout, where kids and everybody else could see it, calendars that you would have to describe as soft porn. And uh, this woman asked to speak to the manager and asked him to remove the objectionable calendars. I, I probably wouldn't have done that. Because in my pessimism, I think the culture is already so far gone. At least it's not Penthouse magazine or something there. I'm a little bit too much like um, the salt that, that I read about. A man walks into a little mom-and-pop grocery store and asks, Do you sell salt? Ha! says the proprietor. Do we sell salt? Just look. And he showed the customer an entire wall of shelves stocked with Morton salt, iodized salt, kosher salt, sea salt, rock salt, garlic salt, seasoning salt, Epsom salts, every kind of salt imaginable. Wow, the customer said. You think that's something, said Pop, with a wave of his hand. Come look. And he led the customer to a back room filled with shelves and bins and cartons and barrels and boxes of salt. Do we sell salt? <laughs> Unbelievable, said the customer. Oh, you think that's something, said Pop. <laughs> he took the customer down some stairs into a huge basement, five times the size of the previous room, filled wall to floor. 
uh, wall-to-wall, floor-to-ceiling with every imaginable form and size and shape of salt, even huge 10-pound salt licks for the cow pasture. Incredible, says the customer. You really do sell salt. No, said Pop. That's just the problem. We don't sell salt, but that salt salesman, boy, does he sell salt. <laughs> when I read that, I thought, you know what, honestly, I, I hate to admit it, but I'm, I'm too much like the salt that stays on the shelf. But this woman complains to the manager. He says, okay, we'll, we'll remove them. A week later, she goes back to the store, and uh, the calendars are still there. She calls the manager on the phone. You know, a minute ago I said that salt is a preservative. Salt is also an irritant. A nice irritant. She says, yeah, yeah, you told me you were going to remove the calendars, but they're still there. The next day they were gone. And I might think, okay, no big deal. There are a lot worse problems in the world, and you're right. But one store in one town was just a little bit less rotten because a salty Christian got off the shelf and spoke up. Jesus' followers knew that salt not only preserves, it flavors. Corn on the cob and popcorn hard-boiled eggs and fresh tomatoes and mashed potatoes and French fries and cream of wheat all taste better with some salt. Salt brings out the flavor. And so the presence of Jesus' disciples in the world flavors the world so that the hospital floor is a more cheerful place because of the Christian nurses who work there. The retirement home is less lonely because of the Christians who live there. The school is more civil. The locker room less coarse because salt has flavored things. You're the salt of the earth, Jesus says. But, but if the salt loses its saltiness, verse 13. It's good for nothing. If I lose that which makes me distinctively a Christ follower, that which enables me to be a preservative and a flavoring agent, if my retirement plans are no nobler than that of the average. If, if my enslavement to credit card debt is the same as that of my non-Christian neighbors, if I am as prejudiced as the bigot who lives next door, if young people are disenchanted with consumer culture and look to the church for an alternative, but turn away disappointed because we're just the same as everybody else, Jesus says, you're good for nothing. 
Sodium chloride is actually a pretty stable compound. It, salt does not become non-salt. But back then, before refining was perfected, what they called salt was actually a mixture of true salt with a lot of other junk that was there on the shore of the Dead Sea. And if the sodium chloride dissolved in water, what was left was this worthless mixture, kind of like gypsum. So imagine sprinkling ground-up drywall on your eggs. Worthless. You and I need to take seriously what Jesus says, good for nothing. Christian gangsters, absurd. But no less absurd than saltless Christian. You are the light of the world. We'll be briefer here. You are, he says, my disciples, the light of the world. Because of sin, this world is a dark place, is it not? Christ followers are supposed to be a beacon of hope, a thousand points of light. The church is supposed to be, as Jesus says, and as we sang, a city on a hill. And sometimes we are. I think of the, the woman in the nursing home where my dad lived. She was young and had the prospect of spending the rest of her life in that or a similar place. She could have been embittered, but she wheeled herself around the place singing hymns and cheering people up, making it a less dark place. I think of unpaid volunteers in crisis pregnancy centers and rescue missions and soup kitchens who make the world a little less dark place. I think of thousands of people who have no place on any organization chart but who brighten the corner where they are, the light of the world. And how absurd to think that a light would be hidden under a bowl, Jesus says. The King James Version uses the word bushel, which is where we get the little song, hide it under a bushel, no, I'm going to let it shine. That's twice I've sung today. I <laughs> thought I might get some applause or something. You're my new best friends. Yeah. Hide it under a bushel. Comes, comes right out of this text. Absurd. No. We put a lamp on its stand and it gives light to everyone on the house. The city on a hill can be seen from long distance. So don't curse the darkness. Be a light. Or better yet, reflect the light. Elsewhere, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. We are just the moon to his sun. And when people see his light reflected in us, they give glory to God. Verse 16, we're supposed to let our light shine so that they may see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. The 
they might respond like Henry Ford responded. There's a story that um, in the main plant there in Detroit, a man came into work one day and said to his foreman, um, I got saved yesterday and I got baptized and I want to give back to the company everything I've stolen over the years. Well, the foreman wasn't sure what to do with this. I mean, he knew what you're supposed to do when you caught somebody stealing from the company, but on the other hand, here's a guy coming clean and he's trying to be honest. And so the foreman called Ford, who was vacationing in Europe, and told him the story and said, what should I do? And Ford said, dam up the Detroit River and baptize the whole plant. <laughs> One more story. Short, John Stott, the great evangelical spokesman, heard about a, a little Hindu girl in India. She had been raised in a strict Hindu home, but she had encountered some Christians. And um, somebody said, what, what do you think a Christian is? She thought for a few moments, and she said, as far as I can tell, a Christian is somebody who's different from everybody else. And Stott said, would that it were true. Well, let's pray about that. Would that it were true. Well, Lord, we have little control over how Christians in India live or anywhere else, but we do have something to say about how we're going to live. Would you make us, please, salt and light? We sang it. We mean it. We want to be preservatives. We want to flavor our world for the better. We want to bring some light into a dark place. So let the word challenge us, but then let the Spirit enable us, too. We cannot do that on our own. But we trust you to help us. And we trust you for this, for our sake, that we might live the abundant life Jesus came to bring. We pray this for his name's sake. And we pray it for the sake of the world for whom he died. In his name, and let all his people say, Amen.